0: Hey, this is a real treat, especially for people outside of Los Angeles who don't get to go to this kind of thing. Today's recording was from an event a couple of weeks ago at the Skirbel Cultural Center. It was part of their um, writer's block program, uh, and it features our old friend Nell Scoville, who is so funny and so smart and has a terrific new book out called Just the Funny Parts, all about her career in Hollywood and uh, specifically about being a woman in a comedy room. Um, it's really worth a listen, and the book is really worth your time and money to pick up. Uh, you'll fly through it as I did. This event features Nell, uh, writer producer Greg Daniels, who of course um, created The Office, King of the Hill, co created Parks and Rec, uh, and is always funny and very dry, uh, as well as Conan O'Brien. It's a really fun conversation uh, about comedy, about television, about being a woman in both of those things, and uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I do need to thank Larry Sandez, uh, who is the AV master over at the Skirbel Center, as well as Sherry Bernstein, and uh, everyone involved with Writer's Block, who allowed me to record this um, and bring it to you all. Enjoy. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, tonight or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker,
1: and it's
2: starting
3: now. Oh, yeah! Nell Scavell is a television writer, director, and producer whose new book, Just the Funny Parts, A Few Hard Truths About Sneaking Into the Hollywood Boys Club is often revelatory and always really funny. It's revelatory for those of us not closely tied to the ins and outs of making a good TV show. While her experience is a great exposition of working women in general, I suggest that her story might be a great deal funnier than others. She gives us innumerable great jokes and anecdotes about ideas pitched both rejected and accepted, including one pretty fabulous storyline that Larry David turned down for a Curb episode, and you're going to have to read the book to find it because it's just so funny. But a few stories shocked me. I learned, for example, that it was a given that the show 24 would never hire a woman in the writer's room. I have confidence, however, that when 24 is rebooted in the not-too-distant future, there will be more than just one woman in that writer's room. Speaking of writer's room, some of you might remember the short-lived TV show, The Wilton North Report. Nell met Greg Daniels and Conan O'Brien there. Uh, Greg went on to create and write for some of the most groundbreaking and popular shows on TV, King of the Hill, The Office, and Parks and Rec. Conan has continued to be one of the most relentlessly funny guys on late night TV. Thank you. It is my... Great delight to bring on Nell Scavell, Conan O'Brien, and Greg Daniels. Thank you. Thank you. Right? It should
2: be on. It, they're always on. You pick them up. Yes. And you speak into this part. Yes. Uh, let me begin uh, by just saying uh, we're really here for now. Uh, she's the only person up here who's written a book. And so, now, congratulations. You wrote a book.
4: Thank you. Well, can I say?
2: Greg tried and failed many times. You actually wrote a book, it's very cool.
4: Well, it's such a treat to be with these two, and I know how busy you are with your families, and your shows, but the truth is...
2: I had nothing going on. Uh,
4: I wrote wrote the entire memoir just so I had an excuse to hang out with you two.
2: Well, we
1: all met. Do you think you could uh, read it? Could you read it out loud? I had... I wanted to ask you some questions, but I thought maybe it'd be more uh, (laughs) to the point. If you'd read the book
4: first, I'm just, oh.
2: just in real time, sort of an Andy Kaufman thing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'll just interrupt when I something occurs to me. Yeah,
4: that which doesn't kill me allows me to regroup and retaliate. That
1: was
2: that's very nice. nice.
4: That's my personal motto.
2: <laughs> Is there going to be a book on tape? Is there going to be an audible, an audio book?
4: Yes, that's it, fantastic. Yeah, they've done that. Um, I didn't do it because nobody knows the sound of my voice, so I got my friend who's an actress, Amy Hone, to do it. Right. It would be so ironic than me. It'd
2: be so ironic if a man did it. (laughs) (laughs) Just be so fucked up in so many ways. Don't worry now, we got this. (laughs) It wasn't easy breaking into the boys' club. (laughs) Narrated by Clint Eastwood. just putting that idea out there. (laughs) Um, You know, I I have a lot of questions. uh, And uh, first of all, uh, I know how Greg and I met you, which was on this insane show called The Wilton North Report. And I know that when we were introduced, they said some of you may remember. (laughs) Nobody remembers The Wilton North Report. It was, no, you're just, no, you don't. Not
4: not even Fox remembers, because I had to contact them to get permission to reprint some photographs and the legal department says no show ever existed on Fox. <laughs> they, they wiped it from their corporate memory.
2: <laughs> yeah. There's no... It's like the men in black stick that makes people forget. <laughs> no. Nobody remembers that show it was on for such a short period of time, but Greg and I had written on a show. We started working together. We graduated in uh, 1985 from a small girls' college in New Hampshire. We came out <laughs> to Los Angeles, and we... Uh, we worked on not necessarily the news, and then when that job dried up, we both did part-time jobs. I think you were an SAT tutor for a while. Yes. That's true, that's not a joke. He was an SAT tutor.
1: That doesn't sound like a joke. Why would that sound like a joke?
2: <laughs> I responded to audible giggling um, that you would be uh, you know, in charge. But no, you were an SAT tutor. I worked at Wilson's House of Suede and Leather. And that jacket was one of your jackets. That's where you got
4: your jacket.
2: Yes. Uh, No, this is much nicer than anything they had. And uh, I literally typed stuff. I was a typist at Wilson's House of Suede and Leather. Mm -hmm. Then we got the call that the most amazing show in the world was being put together. It was going to be called the Wilton North Report. And Greg and I were hired. We got there. And you had been hired, but you had not been a TV writer. Is that
4: right? No, it was my first TV job. I had been writing for magazines in New York when... uh, You wrote for Spy? You were so cool.
1: You were so cool. You showed up from New York. You were like the star reporter from Spy Magazine, which was incredibly cool. And I think you'd also already been married twice. (laughs) That
2: was it. Three times. You were like Liza Minnelli. You showed up. You reminded us immediately of Liza Minnelli, like in the late 70s, really the cool Liza.
4: What can I say? I was a romantic.
2: <laughs> yeah. And you, uh, you hadn't written before, but we all got thrown together and we didn't know. We just thought this thing is, this was the first big yeah. show. We thought this was going to go through the roof. And then we knew there was a problem when they said, yeah, it's going to be a great show. We, the producer said, we just don't have the host. Right. And the producer started auditioning hosts. And brought in, and this is all in your book. And this is, it's, yes. it's. I mean, there's so many great stories in the book about your trajectory and and what you've gone through and what you've experienced, and a lot of hilarious stuff. But just for the stories of this, that show alone, it's a fantastic book because they brought in, as you recount in your book, people like Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we auditioned Ellen DeGeneres. She's amazing. And we were like, she's amazing. And the producer Barry Sands was like. She's going nowhere. (laughs) If you want to picture Barry Sands, picture a man that looks exactly like Joseph Stalin, but in really tight jeans (laughs) and a turquoise belt, and he's always eating a microwaved yam. He would sit there and munch on a microwaved yam. Rosie O'Donnell came in. She's going nowhere. (laughs) It was amazing. All of the biggest stars came in. And they, were go, and they were all like, they ain't got it. Yeah. They got yeah. nothing.
1: I don't think we would have ever worked on that show if there had been an internet because um, we just heard about Barry's credits and he was uh, pitched to us as the producer of SCTV and Letterman. Yes. And we were just like, oh my God, that's amazing. And we signed on Our two to work biggest there.
2: influences, yeah. he must be a genius. And then only later on did I talk to people and they're like, no, he worked at SCTV. He parked the cars. He was the, he was the, he was the he line producer for Letterman, you know? Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. He yeah. had no... He prepared the hot costs. That was yeah, his job. Yeah, exactly.
4: But his girlfriend, the dental hygienist, had a lot of good ideas. Oh, I forgot
1: about her.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. So they gave us this big time slot, and they, brought, they got two drive-time hosts from San Diego. Oh,
4: and, and they canceled Arsenio... To yes. put this on
2: because as barry Sands said he ain't going nowhere <laughs> chomp um he died of yam poisoning anyway and they found these two drive time djs and they oh. said these are the guys and they were they're nice guys and i don't want to put them down but they there wasn't a lot of personality they were two white fairly bland guys and i remembered i don't know if you guys remember this but they put us in a room and they said, it's your job to come up with what their on-air personalities are. <laughs> and Greg was like, Greg is always the one that's like, okay, let's, we can do this. And then he was like, this guy, he's got a mustache. He's the jock. <laughs> this guy doesn't have a mustache, so he's the nerd. And then the guy without the mustache would say, actually, I'm the jock.
1: Uh, and go, Greg would go like, okay, two okay. two jocks. <laughs> can you can grow a mustache? <laughs> yeah, it was two jocks. They were, they were exactly the same person.
4: <laughs> <They were. laughs> yeah,
1: and they were both, they both had one voted for Reagan. One was a little Reagan. meaner than the other. What?
4: One was a little meaner than oh, the I other. I don't
1: remember which one was There was the a one. mean
4: one and the meaner one.
1: <laughs> it was such a mismatch, because for some reason, I don't know who had coached him on the writing staff, but Conan and I were like the least interesting members of the writing staff. There were very, very interesting people, like now coming from Spy, and there was this guy, Paul Krasner, who had... In one of the Chicago Seven, and it was like a counterculture the Realist. hero who had done this magazine called *The Realist*. And there was just a lot of interesting, very, very eclectic, uh, interesting, very choice. political kind of um, left-wing types on the writing staff. And then there were these two, uh, you know, absolute co- cookie-cutter, basically Mormons for the <laughs> for those. <laughs> Mormons are great. Love Mormons. Have Mormon cousins. <clears throat> But I'm just saying, in terms of their conservatism. Um,
4: But our our office. That was
2: pretty interesting, actually. (laughs) What's your assessment? Um, Yeah, yeah, and we. What was interesting is that pretty quickly they didn't anything we pitched. We would he would say no, crazier, crazier. So we pitched a thing where someone's literally in a zeppelin (laughs) interviewing a celebrity who's on the ground. And he was eating his yam, listening, and he'd also wore cowboy boots, and he'd be like, no, I mean crazier. And we didn't know what he was talking about. And then soon there was a vacuum because they wanted us to do, an, was it an hour a night? Oh. It, it, I don't remember.
4: They were trying to do the basically the daily show, but before there was digital technology with the staff half the size yep. and double the time
2: but also not even that clear a focus on what they were doing because it wasn't about the day's events, it was anything. It was, there was no focus to it. So the next thing you know, they started saying, there was an opportunity literally for any of us, anybody up here, and we all did, were just thrown out there on camera, <laughs> some more willingly than others. Uh, and, uh, and, and they would say, if you had any idea at all, you were suddenly on national television. Yeah. And doing something that had no supervision, um, you know, and then I remembered I shot something, I did something on the show, I was so excited, I... Was it
4: the first time you were on TV? It was the
2: first time I was on TV, on national TV, I had been on local TV in uh, Massachusetts, it was the first time I was on national television, and I was so excited about my bit, and I flew home the next day for Christmas break. And I went home, and I walked into the living room, and I thought my parents and my Everyone's going to be cheering me. No one said a word, and the silence was deafening. And my, I was crushed. And everyone's opening their presents, and I was crushed and crushed and crushed. And then I finally said to my brother Neil, um, "Didn't anybody see what I did last night on the Wilton North Report?" And he said, "Oh, the affiliate here in Boston stopped showing that two weeks ago." <laughs> They don't show that shit around here, you know.
4: But was that when you were the documentary filmmaker? Yeah, it was a documentary. That face- was so funny. I still remember one line when um, Phil and Paul asked you, who's your greatest influence?
2: I forget. I really have no idea.
4: <laughs> myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right.
2: Very influenced by myself.
4: <laughs> well, maybe that's, I, we could show the first clip. What's that? We want to show the first clip? Oh, sure, yeah, I
2: don't know what the clips clips are. Well, uh...
4: this is um, the only time I've ever been on TV was on this show, and you will see why. But what's funny about this clip was it was towards the end where no one would come on the show. (laughs) They just couldn't book anyone. Um, And so you'll see... And trust me,
2: that's not easy. (laughs) To live like that day after day. (laughs) Uh,
4: so this is me interviewing a celebrity.
2: Uh, without further ado, here's Wilton North's own Nell Scoville with her very special, very funny friend. Nell?
5: Thanks, Phil. Tonight I'm chatting with one of Hollywood's hottest properties. Please welcome Mr. Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee, you are in fact actor Paul Rubens. Tell me, do you ever confuse the two? I mean, let's say you're at a party. How would you introduce yourself?
3: Hello!
5: Hi, Pee Wee Herman! Well, but doesn't this pose some problems? Let's face it, Pee Wee Herman is a bit immature. This brings me to my next point. You have the reputation of being difficult to work with. You're involved in numerous court battles over the Playhouse. How do you feel about these lawsuits? We can all sympathize with that. Do you expect a quick resolution? You're right, our court system does need an overhaul. Now let's move on. You have many fans, correct? And I'm sure people come up to you on the street, repeat your material. Is there any joke you're getting sick of? Hey, what's that? Major luck. <laughs> what would you prefer that your fans say? I love you. <laughs> well, gosh, that's sweet. Peewee, I hope you'll come back after the holidays. Have you finished your Christmas shopping? I know, I know just how you feel. Thanks again for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Back to you, Phil and Paul. I'm Mel Scovel. Thank you.
2: A golden era of television. Yeah. <laughs> there was a... Uh, I don't know about you, but what I took away from that show, which was invaluable, which was, was an absolute disaster, but I tell a lot of young writers this and anybody that I've encountered... You learn more sometimes from a show that's a disaster than you do from one that's a success. I And you're out of your contract. Yes. <laughs> they, yes. So you can yeah. actually take those lessons somewhere yeah. else. It's not up to your mouth when you speak, Greg. Uh, <laughs> but they, they, yeah, they, uh, I, I thought it was later on when I had my own troubles on different shows, I would think, you know what, I've been on a show that's, I've been on a Titanic, and I know the difference. I know what it feels like, and this, th- that experience taught me so much about what it really feels like to be on a show where nothing's getting traction, and then other times you're on a show where people are telling you, yeah, I'm not getting it, but you feel it, and the staff feels it internally yeah. that you're getting traction. Well, I, you okay, Greg? You look like you're having a...
1: Like, you know, we all worked on The Simpsons and all these interesting shows, and these people bought tickets, and they're listening to this <laughs> stupid... Well, let's move it to on? ...North Report for, like, 45 minutes of reminiscence. On this. Simpsons. <laughs> Piece of trash. Show. Let's talk about...
2: <laughs> let's talk about The Simpsons. <laughs> let's move it on. Now, Nell, you, what was your experience on The Simpsons?
4: It, uh, I saw the premiere on The Simpsons and did something I never did before, which was, or after, and that was call my agent at home and said, I want to write on this show. And it was just this weird-ass cartoon, but it was so funny and so mean, and, and somehow, because it was a cartoon, they could get away with it.
1: You were, you were there before either of us, right? You were there, yeah, like, second season, season two, yeah. That must have been cool. Any fun anecdotes about the room? <laughs>
4: Well
2: quite please yourself with that question, aren't you, Greg?
4: <clears throat> I'll tell one if you sing a poo song <laughs> about the quickie mart. Yeah. Um, so I wrote Ooh, the the episode where Homer eats blowfish and thinks he's gonna die. Um, and it was an idea I brought in, and we um, plotted it out. And originally, uh, I wanted it to be that Homer makes this bucket list, and we see him go through his last day on Earth. But Sam, Simon, who was running the show at the time, thought it would be funny to wrap that story up in one act and then have Homer realize he... Had to make more of his life and live it to its fullest, so he joins the community theater <laughs> and stars in a production of Streetcar Named Desire. Um, and if fans of the show know, that did actually become an episode, although with Marge, did you write it? No, no
1: Jeff no, Martin wrote Jeff it. Jeff Martin, I think.
4: Yeah. Um, and so we stuck to the original pitch.
1: How did you how did you come in as a as a person with a, an idea and somehow get the showrunner to do your version instead of his version?
4: Well, he took it to um, Jim Brooks, and because he was the only one higher than Sam Simon, um, and yeah, Jim liked my way better. <laughs> Which, uh,
2: Which endeared you to Sam? Yeah. Uh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. People love it when you go around them (laughs) to the top. (laughs) Try it out, people. (laughs) You've had more varied experience. You've worked on more different types of shows than either Greg or I. Uh, Me specifically, I just found one little thing and I just keep, uh, you know, kicking that dead horse as long as I can. But you have worked on so many different types of shows and one of the things I think that distinguishes you is you really love... Jokes. This is going to sound like I'm, I'm not uh, telling the truth, but I've never been a big fan of jokes. I tell jokes, and if I have a really good joke, I like it, but I don't love sitting around writing jokes. It's never been something that I've really? loved. I, I like thinking of a silly situation, but you really love crafting a joke. Do you think, oh, that's true?
4: I do. And in fact, the first time I learned how to write a joke was with these guys, and we were working on a sketch for Wilton North, and um, I was... Here we go again. Here we go. No, I... um,
2: It was the most influential show ever. (laughs) It was very... It was like Seinfeld. (laughs) Only it wasn't.
4: So I had come from magazines, and so as a journalist, I could think of kind of big concepts, but we were doing... um, a story about the Reagan White House, that's how long ago this was, and the, the line was that the Reagan's dog was named Rex, and that um, Greg wrote this joke, and how Rex would roam the halls late at night, and the ghost of Abraham Lincoln would also roam the halls late at night, and it was unclear which one of them was responsible for the small stain on the carpet. LAUGHTER
1: don't remember that, but <laughs> it sounds like it's in my wheelhouse.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I remember how it was constructed and, and kind of going, oh, that's how you do it. And a um, couple of years later, you guys went off to SNL and um, I got hired at Late Night with David Letterman. And it, one of my great joys was the, doing the top 10 list every day and you had 45 minutes to write all the jokes you could think of. Um, My first one, I still remember my first ever um, entry on the top ten list, which was the top ten least popular summer camps, and I slid in at number ten with Camp Tick in beautiful Lyme, Connecticut.
1: (laughs) One of the joys that I had reading your book was just remembering how funny you are. You're so funny, and you're such a good joke writer, and the book is really... Hilarious, and it's every line is crafted. And I don't think anybody taught you how to write jokes because one of the things I thought was so interesting about your, um, you know, the chapters on your childhood is how you you kind of were trained by your dad to get his attention by coming up with lines. And I I feel like that's just baked deep inside of you.
4: Well, my dad was really funny. His sisters, he had two sisters. My aunts Jane and Pinky were also hilarious. And um, there's this great story of my sister Alice was on the couch reading Little Women when Pinky walked by, tapped her on the shoulder, and said, don't get too attached to Beth. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I just grew up always thinking women were funny, and my aunts were um, delightful and got all this positive... Attention for it, and uh, so I did like being funny.
2: That's yeah. interesting because you, uh, something that I noticed growing up is that my mother, we, I grew up in a very traditional Irish Catholic family, and I was always wondering where you got your confidence because, you know, I love my parents, but I know that my mom had a bit of a double standard, so if my brothers and I were making jokes, it was funny to her, and if one of my two sisters started to make jokes, it was. It, it almost felt like they were being unladylike. And she yeah. used to, we would chew gum and she wouldn't say anything. And then if one of my mm-hmm. sisters chewed gum, she'd say, you're a whore. Um, <laughs> she actually knitted that on a sampler. Uh, but, um, but it was a double standard. and It's something that I've thought about a little bit, because obviously it, it you know, one of the things that you've done is you've, persevered and it has not always been easy but it is a uh there there are these almost cultural barriers sometimes that i think that i witnessed when i was growing up where i thought women i just and when i saw in the microcosm that i lived in women aren't being rewarded for being funny by my parents the same way that the men are
4: so my um Mom went in for my parent-teacher conference at uh, my third grade, and the teacher told her to tell Nell to stop making jokes in class. Um, And my mother delivered the message on my 40th birthday. (laughs) (laughs) This is totally true. And, uh, you know, I was an established comedy writer by then, and... uh, you know, I'm, I'm really glad she waited to tell me that my teacher had notes on my personality.
1: <laughs> Your turn, Greg. <laughs> well, how about Monk? Let's talk about Monk. <laughs> that was a great show, and that was like a one-hour... Delightful. Lighthearted mystery.
4: I, I wrote three episodes of Monk, and. Um, the Sarah Silverman starred in one of them. She was very funny.
2: Did you work with Andy Breckman on that? I did. And he's he... one of the great. I'm. He's one of the great all-time comedy writers, in my opinion. And I agree. I worked with him a little bit on Sound Out Live*, and he just he's hilarious and he's very old school. But I could see him loving you because he <laughs> likes jokes and he likes good jokes.
4: Well, I'll tell this story because we're at the Skirball Center. It's a one a of my name. favorite moments about Andy is how he's just he's so quick and so imaginative and one day we were talking about having a time machine and one of the other writers said that he would just go back in time and get a lot of um, comic books from the golden age and bring it back and someone else said well you know shouldn't you stop off and kill Hitler first (laughs) Um, And then Andy just got this funny look on his face, and he said, what if I got in a time machine and I go back to kill Hitler, but when I arrive, he's in the middle of a speech, so I can't do anything. And I start to listen and think, you know, (laughs) the guy's got some good ideas. And then he goes. And what if the entire Third Reich is just time travelers going back to kill Hitler? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and you, you thought the Skirball was the best place to yeah. tell that joke? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> <I did. laughs> tell me about Murphy Brown. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Uh, Murphy Brown was... I hear they're
1: going to reboot They're it.
4: rebooting it, yeah.
2: They're rebooting everything. It's, it's the
4: golden age of no new ideas.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's some, I haven't seen them. It's Roseanne's coming back. Someone is that, Did I see that on a bus stop somewhere? <laughs> Seriously, I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm it asking is, you. It is. I'm going to you people for my news about what's happening <laughs> in television because I don't know. But, yeah, it's all coming back.
1: Fox has deleted the Wilton North report.
2: That will, <laughs> that That's not back. coming back. <laughs> yeah.
4: Unless we have an announcement right here.
1: <laughs> it's okay, Greg. Uh, the Muppets now. That must have been an experience.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I have a question because yes. we've both been on different sides of this, which is you've written jokes for uh, the White House Correspondence Dinner I've had to be on the other side of that, which is be the person who goes after the president and tell jokes. And it is fascinating. I would love to hear about that from the other side because I know from my side, it feels intensely, um, it's insane, it's insanely unfair to make comedians go after Barack Obama. (laughs) You know, because comedy is all about status. And I've always known that he had, people, like, calling together hundreds of the best jokes and putting them together, and we're doing shows, and we do the best we can, and we put together what we think is good stuff. He goes out and just destroys and then drops the mic, and there's just <coughs> madness. The, the room goes insane, and he walks back, and before he's, the applause is even done, someone says into a microphone, ladies and gentlemen, Colonel O'Brien." <laughs> 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 and you're, like, sitting there, and you're like, oh, God, and you get up, and then there's no applause, and you're walking, and you can hear your shoes squeak. (laughs) And you can hear, like, the president's right where you're sitting, and you can hear his gurgling stomach. And he's just, he's like a a lion that just devoured a gazelle. He's just, (laughs) he's done, he's happy, and then you have to go. uh, And it's thrilling, it's like a thrilling challenge, but I know that you've been on the other side watching him do your jokes, and I'm wondering how that works, because I'd always heard that he gets all these different people and they submit them, but you probably don't know which ones he's going to do, which ones he's not going to do.
4: Um, I actually would see a script oh, on Saturday script. morning. Right. And um, the first time I contributed jokes, one of them was about Matt Damon. And um, the joke was, you know, Matt Damon um, uh recently said that he was disappointed in my performance. Well, Matt, I just saw the Adjustment Bureau and right back at you, buddy. <laughs> um, and uh, that Saturday morning, I got an email from John Favreau, the, um, the uh, speechwriter, not the director, and he said, ah, oh, the president thinks that joke about Matt Damon's too mean, he doesn't want to tell it. And I said, well, I I did see the Adjustment Bureau, and truth is a defense. (laughs) And I I was actually working on a set in Toronto and flew back that afternoon and ran into the House and turned on C-SPAN just in time to see the president. And when he said, um, Matt Damon, I love that guy, I just screamed, he's doing it. (laughs) Because I, I, I didn't know until that moment.
2: Right. Yeah. My, my experience is that he go, they don't tell me, they love to not tell the comic which jokes he's doing about which topics. And he gets to go first. Right. So you have a big, I have a big pile of jokes, oh. and one by one I hear him take out, because it's all from the news. <laughs> so I'm sitting there next to Michelle Obama or Hillary Clinton, and I'm listening to someone take, literally go ahead of you and do, and I'm taking the blue cards out and throwing them out as I go, so your pile's getting smaller and smaller. But I would think it would be much more fun and relaxing to be, you know, seeing... Did you have a favorite joke that you did for Obama?
4: Probably my favorite was um, for the Al Smith dinner, which he um, spoke out with Mitt Romney. That's the Catholic mm-hmm. League dinner. And the joke was um, that... Uh, me and Mitt Romney have a lot in common. We both have wonderful wives. We both went to Harvard. We both have unusual first names. Actually, Mitt is his middle name. I wish I could use my middle name. (laughs) 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 And he looked kind of sad afterwards. And um, and that was fun because it just... It required a cultural knowledge in mm-hmm. order to get the joke. The only downside was Sean Hannity actually tweeted, like, I enjoyed that middle name joke. That was pretty good. And I thought, oh, I gave Sean Hannity a moment of joy. Yeah. And that, that it wasn't worth it. Yeah. yeah. No, but the, he, Obama's just, he's such a great joke teller.
2: He's great, yeah. yeah. He's very... Uh... And also he, he developed it. You could see over his eight years, he got better and better. And then by the end, it was... Um, you know, Yeah, you could tell that this was his favorite part of the year. And I remember just seeing him do lots of like... Suddenly he was... By the end, he was doing prop humor. And, you know, they were cutting to, to addis behind him. Like he was doing Weekend Update. And he'd be like, yeah, check out that car. And then bang, a picture would... And it was a fully produced comedy show. It was a fully produced comedy show. When you know, 30 years before, it had been the president making a few mild-mannered, chuck, you know, press people chuckle, and then everyone getting drunk. Right. It turned into uh, a full-on, sophisticated comedy extravaganza.
1: I had an experience with Governor Ann Richards of Texas, oh, um, I love who her. was really great. She's the the woman that had the line about George H.W. Bush. Poor George, he was born with a silver foot in his mouth. <laughs> at the convention and she was a guest on King of the Hill and she had a scene and right before we recorded her she took the script and she just went through it and uh, punched it up, made it like 20 times better. It was so embarrassing because <laughs> she was like the greatest uh, comedy writer. That's my life. Well, I always
4: thought of the president, um, the good one, as the greatest sitcom character because he was the leader of the free world who lived with his mother-in-law. <laughs> and that just seemed so funny.
2: I once <laughs> pitched an idea of the president, someone's the president of the United States, but on the side, they solve crimes. Uh, <laughs> and it's just like, hits something he's interested in. So he's literally in a motorcade headed to the UN and he sees like something going down in an alley and he gets out. And he gets the shit kicked out of him, but then he makes it back to the, and he's like, wait, I know how they're moving the drugs, and no one <laughs> no one understands. It will never be made. It's a good idea. Any of you, anyone here can have it.
4: Greg, what's the dumbest idea you've had for a show?
1: Uh, uh, that's hard. That's hard.
4: Well, you'll come up
1: with it. There's a lot. My brain is overloaded now with all
4: (laughs) With all the dumb ideas. All these
1: things that I've tried in the past. I was going to... uh, Joel Hodgson and I once wrote
4: an entire (laughs) screenplay um, about garbage bags that come to life and smother people. (laughs) And we, we thought it was this great metaphor for how we're drowning in our own garbage. And... Um, The tagline was, Trash doesn't care. And and nobody else did either.
2: (laughs) That's a terrible idea. It
4: was a terrible
2: (laughs) idea. We we wrote the entire
4: screenplay.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. We've all been in this business uh, about the same amount of time. And I'm often, that just made me think of you know, people only really think about the things that you've worked on that are successful, and I'm, I'm just thinking right now about all of the jokes, all of the man-hours spent thinking of sketches and ideas and things that never went anywhere that were terrible, and how much working in this business means... Uh, what people only see is the part that really works, and if you flip through your book, we're seeing all of the stuff that really clicked, but to get there, you have to generate... Hundreds of thousands of legal pads of yeah. shitty, shitty ideas, <laughs> and that's still the requirement. And I, don't I think st- pe- I still have so
1: many memories of sketches for SNL that didn't get produced that I'm still.
4: that's, a different, that's peni- a different thought.
1: But and the, yet, the, the
4: penis sketch did.
1: The ones that got away, yeah. Well, the penis sketch wasn't bad.
4: Well, the penis was sketch it? was good.
1: Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh,
4: you all remember the penis sketch.
2: <laughs> no, they don't, and that's okay. <laughs> they remember the circumcised penis sketch. <laughs> the, um... I don't know, I would say... I, I, I would say that's one of the things, like, I always try and think about what would I want to hear about if I came to something like this, and I would, would be interested... I would like it if people told me the truth, which is how much how humbling it is to try and think of comedy and how much of, there's a high failure rate of just ideas and how much tenacity comes into it. I mean, you, clearly your book, a lot of it's about tenacity, yeah. too. You just, and, and you're, work, you're moving from project to project and you're sort of fearless about it. And I think that is one of the requirements.
1: How do you like a broom? How do you like, this, this brings up something, unless you had something good to say, then I'll...
4: I was going to talk about The X-Files.
1: That's not on there. (laughs) Well,
4: that's why I was going to talk about it.
1: Go ahead.
4: Well, I love The X-Files and um, I love science fiction. I originally thought I'd be a sci-fi writer. And I went in, um, I can't remember what season, maybe the fourth season. And I pitched an idea to Chris Carter and they bought it. And I went off and I wrote my outline and turned it in, and I'm waiting for the call to come in for notes, and I phone rings, and it's Chris Carter's assistant, and he gets on the line, and he sounds happy, and you know how, like, you read everything into it, uh, and he says, I have good news, I said, great, Stephen King wants to write in X-Files, and I'm like, that's amazing, and he said, yes, you're the only freelance assignment, so we're gonna have to give it to him. And, well, you can't really get upset about getting replaced by Stephen King, right? I mean, he's sort of the greatest writer around. But what I realized is in so many of Stephen King's books, you know, there's the innocent person who gets taken out by some agent of chaos, like Cujo. And the Stephen King monster in my life was Stephen King. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, That's in the book. <laughs> yes? Yes. That's yes. right in the book. You can get more like that if you buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> I heard it makes a great Passover
2: gift. <laughs> That's what I thought when I saw it in the store. <laughs> I just didn't know when Passover was. <laughs> no, I know that's a big deal um, Congratulations, by the way <coughs> Thank you people are doing great uh, I just wanted to say that at screwball <laughs> Not a lot to drink uh, I was told that we should probably move to questions um, Around this time and I love this. I did a thing with Bob Newhart once where everyone was sitting in the audience and it was very easy just for them to stand and ask a question. No, no. No, no. And they said, no, no. You've got to do it the cool way on Twitter. (laughs) Yes, I know. I understand.
1: Well, 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 let me ask you a question. Well, Conan figures that out. I want to ask a question that I was going to ask before about Sabrina the Teenage Witch.
4: Oh, yeah. I Um, created that show. Yes,
1: how was that? And how did you find show running? And um, I know that you left that show, so I'm guessing you didn't find it that good. But, um, you know, what, what was that like? What was that experience like?
4: Oh, I love magic, and the actual creative part of that show was, was wonderful. Mm. Um, it, uh, it was a lot of pressure, and you know, years later, um, when I was working with Sheryl Sandberg on Lean In, uh, she told me about this study called the Heidi Howard study, and it was basically a case study at a business school where they split the class in half, and they gave one half this... Um, this case study about a guy named Howard, who was an entrepreneur, and the other half got a case study about Heidi, who was an entrepreneur. They were the exact same studies, but the only thing they changed was the name. So the students came back the next day and were asked questions. Everyone wanted to work for Howard. He was a great guy, good at his job. Heidi, people agreed she was competent, but nobody wanted to work for her. And she seemed very out for herself. And study after study has shown that success and likability is positively correlated for men, and success and likability are negatively correlated for women. So it was running a show, you know, I, I want to be liked, and it, it was very hard. And. Um, uh, I wish I had known that then because you, I took it very personally and I thought I, had done, I was doing things wrong. Um, but I think it was the position and the, the cultural bias. Not that I was perfect, but... Uh, I,
2: I was busy scanning uh, yes. the people that are right here that could easily just ask them. Uh, <laughs> which show was that you were discussing? Because I was, I was literally looking down.
4: Sabrina, the teenager. Sabrina, Okay,
2: because this question sort of relates to that this is from uh, Samantha Becker in the audience. Describe how it felt when you were asterisked out of your writing job on Charm. For me, it was an upsetting example of how women are silenced in ways we don't think of. Was that, a, you know, a, what, what kind of moment was that for you? I don't even, I don't know what they're talking about.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, <clears throat> it's a little hard to explain that whole story. I'll just say that when I, I left Charmed, I left a nail-shaped hole in the door. <laughs>
2: You were anxious to go.
4: I was anxious to go. Uh,
2: if you could bring back two dearly departed women comedians, who oh. would you bring back and what would you do with them? Oh. You know, uh, let's try and keep these clean
4: uh, Joan Rivers, and I'd make her let me stay in her apartment when I was in New York. Um, and, uh, oh. I'm trying to think, who else? Who would you bring back?
1: Well, Lucille no, Balls. A no. lot of people. Mom's maybe. I
4: mean, Carol, Carol so just, Burnett's still alive. You just basically
2: said, I'm glad Lucille Ball's dead. <laughs> Someone just said, You have a chance to bring her back to life. And you went, No. no. Let her remain in her grave. <laughs> Gilda. 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 Oh, Gilda Radner,
4: yes. Good, good answer.
2: These are, a lot of these are just uh, people saying really nice things, which is great. You should read them, but I'm, I'm looking for questions. It's just, oh, are there ever days in the writer's room where you just don't feel funny? If so, how
1: do you deal with it? Well, uh, that's why there's a room. That's why there's more than one writer, because nobody can be funny all the time, except for you, Conan. <laughs> <laughs> I think you really I mean that believe sincerely. that, sincerely. Um, but yeah, and th- th- that brings up something that I was uh, interrupted from asking earlier, um, <coughs> which is when you're Such talking an about dick. Uh, all, the all <laughs> all the stuff always that always was, you, uh, <coughs> always will be. <coughs> uh, your, your notebook's full of bad ideas. Um, my, my question is. Uh, when you're in a room, how do you like the room to be? Do you like the room to be a room where people edit themselves and only say the good stuff, or where they just say anything that comes to mind, and then everybody runs with it in a group effort? What do you think of that? I think... I'll take my, my answer off the air. <laughs>
4: um, I like a room where everyone feels safe to say whatever they want.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. That, and, that...
4: and sometimes that means not saying something that you know will upset someone else in the room.
1: So that's the, the, the editing kind, or the kind where they, they feel that they can say anything?
4: I, is, I, I, the... No, it's, it's a room with empathy, where you recognize that something that might be funny to you could be hurtful to ah, someone else. This has is,
1: this is actually gone in a direction I wasn't intending. I just, <laughs> I just meant... <clears throat> Greg wants the answer he had in his mind. (laughs) (laughs)
4: I'm sorry.
1: No, but when we were on The Simpsons, it was very interesting to me because when I showed up there, it was a very quiet room. They had very, very, very high standards, and people swallowed a lot of pitches until they thought they had something good, and then they'd pitch it out. And then um, a couple of new writers got hired who were from a different, uh, you know, tradition, and just blabbed and blabbed and blabbed as much as they could, hoping something would stick, and, uh, and they were immediately fired. <laughs> so... Well, <laughs> I what? just was wondering if you guys had an, uh, a feeling on that. How do you run your your staff there, Conan?
4: Have you met them?
2: No. <laughs> I, I'm told they're very happy. Uh, we, uh, we pay them in produce. Um, I... Uh, I will second what you said, which is I love a writer's room and I love it to be uh, a place where you can say the most terrible, insane, crazy things and people feel safe that this is a special zone where, uh, I, I mean, really some of the riffs that people get on sometimes are incredibly insane and they can't survive the writer's room, meaning there's a lot that happens in a writer's room that if you tried to reconstruct it later on, wouldn't make sense to anybody it would just there's riffs and tangents that people get on that get hilariously funny but they cannot live outside a writer's room and if they god forbid ever showed up in a court document you'd never ever be able to defend it and that is i mean just and so i think it's kind of a very strange place to describe a really good writer's room
4: well in in the chapter about the simpsons um I recall a line that came up in the room where you know Homer sees his father, and again, he's eaten this blowfish, and he thinks he's going to die, and the line that was pitched was Grandpa Simpson saying, um, they say the worst thing is to lose a child, but actually, it's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was such a great room joke, because you know you would never do that in an episode, but we all laughed really hard. I don't know hard. if people
2: here have been told that they were originally told to use hashtag Ask Nell, and that is, was taken and it's for the series Victoria. Well, let's do it. There's a, <laughs> there's a live Q&A with Nell Hudson, also known as Miss Skerritt, that's happening at the same time. <laughs> so I am literally pouring through this thing and there are things like why did they get rid of Mr. Skettledan's character? <laughs> I'm like what the fuck is that what are they talking about and I, I'm, I'm trying to find ones about us and if you learned French can you give some lessons to Jenna no, that's from that series again what do you say to your French fans what, uh, okay no okay let me get back to I just wanted you to know that that's what's happening right now it's a series and I hear it's pretty good Don't listen to me, I'm just still looking for... I was told...
4: Wait, while he's looking, let's watch this one-minute clip of
2: Conan. Oh, no, God, don't show that. This is me early on. I didn't know what I was doing. It's not my fault. I needed the money. If you're watching the Wilton North Report at home right now, and you're all alone, we have a special treat. Maybe you're feeling a little blue because you're not at a party celebrating with friends. But we've taken care of that thanks to state-of-the-art interactive TV. Right. Now, you don't need any special equipment for this now, but we do ask you to help us out a little bit. Now, Dency, how much time do we have left? That's one minute Okay, now. we're one minute for midnight. Okay. You 10, 9, eight, 8, 7. Guys. Here we go. Now it's the female's turn. Move close to your TV set, and don't forget, girls, pucker up. Here comes midnight.
3: Hi, baby.
2: <laughs> what do you say oh, we okay. bring in the new year with a nice, big, wet one? from a guy who really knows what he's doing. (laughs) I'll get you some champagne. Would you say your name was again?
1: Glad we resurrected that. You were the guy that, that swept the leg in The Karate Kid, too, weren't you? <laughs>
4: Jesus,
1: Jesus. I did not write that. I don't remember. Who wrote that? That? Yeah.
4: I did Oh, okay. <laughs>
2: I'm
4: sorry. That's great.
2: That's great. You made me look like it a rapist. It amuses
4: me. <laughs>
2: I look like a sad Katie Lang. Okay, lots of questions about that show. Maybe someone here in the audience has a question. That, yes? Uh, you worked on the David Letterman show, and I'm curious
4: if you have any comment about uh, how Letterman would survive in our current future society, and if you think that's worth exploring now about the show. He, um, he has a new Netflix show, and I couldn't help but notice that of the five executive producers, they're all men. Uh, So maybe he's solving the problem by (laughs) just uh, not having many women around.
2: Who do you think you are? (laughs) Just because you were busy trying to find, on your phone, trying to find that Victoria series. The question was, how would David Letterman survive in this new uh, Me Too moment? And, and the answer
4: uh, is just fine. <laughs> what do you want to do next? What do you want
2: to do after Oh. Yeah, what, uh, do you, what do you want to do next? Tonight,
1: have you, have you eaten yeah.
4: dinner? That <laughs> <laughs> was like, what are you, my dad? I wrote a book. I, isn't, isn't that enough?
1: <laughs> no
2: it's always what's next it's
4: always what's next
2: yeah
4: and when this is true i called my dad to tell him that um president obama was going to do jokes of mine that that night of the um dinner and he was very sort of confused and was like how did that happen and i went through the story about how um i had met john favreau and he asked me to contribute jokes and then my dad said um okay um What else is new? (laughs) And I said, I I wrote jokes for the president. That's it. There's nothing else new.
2: (laughs) We're all still looking for that acceptance from our parents. That's the first thing I think about is, oh, I'll tell my parents, Yeah. which is funny. I have a framed picture in my office of my parents laughing at something I'm doing. And I I keep it there because I know that that's, for a lot of us, the motivation. It starts there. It really does start like that's where the neural grooves get carved, and then you can say whatever you want about I think that's the 30, true. 40, 50, 60 years that come later, your parents don't even have to be around anymore. You're still trying to make them you're, you're trying to make them laugh, yeah. essentially. Only now you're just trying to get paid for it. <laughs> and there's medical benefits and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, Yes, there's a question way in the back there. Yes. You, you have to do this by Twitter. I can't acknowledge you as a human being. Why don't you tweet the question to me now, and I'll try and find it for 20 minutes. (laughs) Because that's how we do it in the modern world. (laughs) Or you could stand and say it loudly.
4: Um, It's mostly flattering. You know, when you... I have a joke that I, I could have called it just the angry and bitter parts, but that would be an eight volume set. Uh, so, when I, you know, you, you, you go into it and you think, oh, I'll set all these scores. But the truth is, it's so much nicer to thank the people and credit the people who were good to you and who taught you how to write a joke and um, who supported and advocated for you. So I actually don't use, I tell, most of the negative stories don't have names attached to them. Although if you're, if you want to figure it out, you, you can. Um, but there's, I mean, there were so many, especially male mentors who um, were wonderful to me. And I loved writing about Arthur Penn, the director who, um, I leaned on when I was directing my movies, and Barry Kemp, who created Coach, who was just the greatest boss. Um,
1: I like making my parents laugh, but I want to recognize that one of my complete comedy idols is in the, in the audience, Albert Brooks, and I, if he would laugh at something yeah, that we did, that mine would be too. the most uh, gratifying. <laughs> mm. No, I was never
2: a fan. I don't get it. No, I. Never, I just never got it with Albert.
4: <laughs> so, in the book, I talk about how, um, in my twenties, I'm living in New York. I'm still writing for magazines, and this mutual friend of ours, um, Tom Gamble and Max Pross, who are working at Saturday Night Live, and I, I knew vaguely. Tell me to go see this movie. Real Life by Albert Brooks. I know. And this movie is what made me want to be a comedy writer. Because it wasn't Woody Allen or Mel Brooks winking at the camera. It was so deeply human and funny and weird. And he didn't even hear how insane he was. (laughs) So if you haven't seen it, you should all watch it. It's great. That's my
1: single favorite comedy movie. Amazing. Yeah.
2: I heard famously you don't like compliments. They make you uncomfortable. <laughs> it's true, and that's why I've, I've never, I, I, the times I'm with you, I never compliment you, because I've always heard, he, he doesn't like compliments. And now you sit there, and you're just soaking it up like gravy. <laughs> Ridiculous.
4: And now we have a treat. We're going to show all of real life. Yeah. (laughs) You all have an hour and a half, right?
2: Make me very happy. (laughs) I don't know. They they put me in charge of the timing here. And, uh, you know, and so I don't know even who to look to. Who's in charge of this thing? (laughs) This is, I want to say it's, you know, I'm sorry, but I think it's very badly run. (laughs) I expect more when I hear the name Skirball. A few more questions is fine? Okay. Yes, you, sir, right there with your hand up. That's a good question. Was there someone you wanted to write for, a show, or someone? I have a lot of experiences like days?
1: that. I, I spent two Excuse days. me, I was asking
2: now. No, you were, oh, no oh. I'm, I'm thinking. Was this an evening with Greg Daniels? No, Greg. I'd love to see your book, everything. Greg. Why don't you bring it out? Nell's written for everything. <laughs> I can't imagine there'd
1: be signs. All right, please. No, go ahead, Greg. I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to mail shame you. (laughs) 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 I I wanted to write for The Larry Sanders Show, and I did two days of punch-up on there, and I was interviewed multiple times, and I was so close. I never got that job.
4: I wrote a reboot of McLeod for USA starring Brett Butler. And I... It it sounds weird, but I'm sad it didn't go forward. She was really funny.
2: My biggest disappointment was I worked on a show with Robert Smigel called Look Well with Adam West. And I, in my mind, thought this could be the funniest TV show ever made. And then the uh, pilot, we made the pilot, and then it, it didn't go forward. And then I realized immediately afterwards that could never have been a TV show. Like, <laughs> I loved it much more living on as this cool pilot, but it, it took me a little while to get there, but, but I realized, no, that could not have been a show. It was, it's, it's, it, it, it lives on in eternally young and as a possibility, and in, in that way, that's maybe the yeah. way I prefer it. Anyone else? Yes. Any difference between how women are heard in comedy writing rooms versus drama writing rooms? That's just clearly for you.
4: Uh, I actually, uh, um, I actually think comedy writing rooms are better for women than drama writing rooms. But that might just be the drama rooms that I've been in. Um, but comedy, it's it's really writing as a team sport, and and drama you you tend to go off to your room and come up with ideas but boy when it, when it's all working on a comedy show it's great
2: yes sir way in the back yes you You know, well, I could only take a guess. I mean, I don't know. Do you know the answer? Because I, I could, I could. Well, stab I think they a
4: got a monorail and it ruined everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Blame that. When shows uh, run for a certain amount of time, uh, and people are cranking out 22 episodes a year, there gets to be a point where. Uh, they start running, you know, sometimes they start reaching out beyond the parameters that they already have, and it's because they're running up again. Now, sometimes that kills a show, and suddenly you're, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters are appearing on uh, an episode of Quincy, and you're like, what? <laughs> what the hell happened, you know? And um, and and that's when shows go off the rails, or the, the Great Gazoo shows up on Flintstones, and and, and I'm sorry, but no, I'm not a fan <laughs> And that's when uh, Shows can run on fumes I think The Simpsons has done a brilliant job I've revisited it because I've, My son is a huge fan And I've been watching them with him I haven't watched it for years Once the residuals stopped, I didn't give a shit <laughs> But I But I, I revisit it And I'm, 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 I'm seeing that they have really Been able to keep the quality up uh, And sometimes you see an episode you like less But Yes, I do think over time, it's, it's mostly about try to do a show for, how many years has it been now? 32 years or oh, something, crazy. And, and 22 episodes each year, and try to keep it just to Springfield, and no bells and whistles, it's pretty tough.
1: Do you remember that, that story George Meyer used to tell? about I guess he was, um, he was grumbling about the fact that we were doing an episode involving Sideshow Mel, and he, he had this dialogue with a fan of the show where uh, the fan would say, what's next week's episode about? And he'd say, um, is it about, uh, is it about uh, Homer? And the, the person would go, no, it's not about Homer. Do you know, uh, you know Homer's son, Bart? Of course, I love Bart. Is that a Bart episode? No, 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 it's not a Bart episode. Um, you know how Bart uh, likes this uh, TV show uh, where the, the lead is Krusty the Clown? And the guy's like, Yeah, yeah, I think I know that. Yeah, is it a Krusty the Clown episode? No, no. Um, <clears throat> there's the Krusty the Clown has a sidekick on the show uh, called Sideshow Bob. Um, no, I don't know that character. Yeah, is it a Sideshow Bob episode? No, he's got like a brother named Sideshow <laughs> Mel or something. <laughs> and that's what we're doing this week. <laughs> and uh, I think about that sometimes when you start going into the too far from the main Get characters. into the weeds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just... when,
4: when I went in, though, for my meeting at The Simpsons, I remember someone mentioned um, Ned Flanders, and this show was so new, I had to ask, like, what's his character? And someone said, um, he's unfailingly nice, so Homer hates him.
2: <laughs> that show's amazing, though. I have to say, of anything I've ever worked on, that's the one where anywhere I go in the world, I can be... I can be in the, the densest part of the rainforest and if and I could be uh, dying of thirst and I could just say that I worked on the Simpsons, and everyone there comes to my aid and they ask me questions, but it really is in terms of a worldwide phenomenon it is abs- it 's just a juggernaut it 's absolutely incredible. I just wanted to get a little credit out there for the simpsons yeah what 's it Which way? yes, hello.
4: Uh, well people always say how did uh, how did you guys meet she's in Silicon Valley you're in LA um, and once I tell you you'll be like oh that's obvious um, we met through Facebook and <laughs> uh, and we had a mutual friend. Uh, What's interesting is I I worked with her um, to help her write speeches originally, and the first one we worked on was in 2011. It was the Forrestal Lecture at Annapolis, and um, in the book you can see I saved, she had sent me an outline for the speech, and in it it says, tell women to lean in. And and that was the first time she used that phrase.
2: Is there going to be? Is there? A, are you work? Is there another book, Cheryl? Sandler yeah, I'm book? writing
4: my, my own. It's called Bargin. <laughs> it's. <clears throat> I don't think it's going to do as well.
2: All right. All right. Yes. Hi.
4: Well, Coach was great because Barry Kemp was this amazing mentor and he really taught me how to write for sitcom and he had this saying, which I I love, that writing is not an act of creation, it's an act of discovery. And it means you...
1: He stole all his ideas, (laughs) Barry Kemp. He would discover them in people's, the trunks of their cars and (laughs) notebooks that he stole from Starbucks.
4: (laughs) That's stuff
1: right. like that. But he, That's he, not true.
4: No, He was so polite, too. I love this story because it's so not Hollywood where we would do a table read and sometimes a joke wouldn't work and Barry would put a little question mark next to it and then we'd go back to the writer's room and you'd do your punch-up and you would get to that line and he would go, I, I think we can beat this. And occasionally one of the writers would argue and say, no, the... The actor didn't sell it. I think that that joke could work, and Barry would go, "No, I I think we can beat it." And it took me a little while, but I figured figured out his question mark meant no. But he was such a nice person, and he knew how much work went into every joke. That you know, I've seen showrunners; they'll just put a big X through, you know, an entire page, and it's hard when you're. if you're the writer. So I thought he was just so polite.
2: Yes. Back there. Yeah, you're like a serial killer and we can't find the pattern, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You just move from town to town, you work on different projects, and then they (laughs) find the limbs later on. What's what's that all about?
4: Uh, It was not by design, and some of it is because um, I I turned 40 and had two kids, and it was kind of hard for me to get jobs. So I took whatever came my way, and... uh,
1: But you know, uh, you know now, I think you're being too modest, because people in Hollywood like to put you in a box, and they say, if you do sitcoms, it's all you do is sitcoms. If you do late night, you do late night, you know? It's hard to to, jump out. They put you in a box, huh? Yeah, well.
2: Was that your cliche alarm? What happened there, Pat? We lived together try for a, a long time. Now. And he, <laughs> try to compliment He her. was so hard to live with that I had to get him back. Sorry. <clears throat> you're right. They put you in a box.
1: No, that was a compliment. <laughs> I'm complimenting you. Because I, I think most, most people wouldn't, you know, it's hard, to, yeah. it's hard to go from drama to every different genre. Most people won't give you a break. And you're obviously so talented that they said, yeah, she can do anything. I think ageism is one thing we have. Precise that, Conan. Yeah. Get your hands out of your pants.
2: <laughs> Ageism's another thing. That's just, I mean, thats it's in the comedy world, but it's also, it's, it's, it's pretty much yeah. across every part of our culture. But I, there definitely is a, I mean, even when we first came into the business and we were 22, 23, there was this, yeah, you're young, you're new, you're going to be great, and that would... I remembered, like, six years later, it would be, who's 22? We need a 22-year-old. And so it was shocking to me how quickly that happened, how quickly people wanted uh, someone who was just out of college as if they had the answer.
4: Well, I mean, the ageism is real, and they, in fact, the studios and agencies settled a lawsuit with writers um, maybe 10 years ago, and... uh, what was amazing to me was the cutoff age for participating in this suit was not 60, it wasn't 50, it was 40. And, you know, in most professions, you're just kind of hitting your stride. And we're like professional athletes, but without but any not at all coordination.
2: Like <laughs> we are nothing like professional athletes. They're so good at what they do. (laughs) Uh, We're probably going to have to wrap this up soon. I don't know if we have time for uh, one more question. Something really upbeat about, isn't it all good or something? Yeah. Something, it's rainy out. We're here at Skirball. Let's just end on a real high note. Uh, uh Uh-oh. I don't know. I'm going to go with you. Yeah. Yeah. What's this going to be good?
4: Yes, Emmy Award winning Scott Alexander. Sure. Spy was considered so unique because it was snarky. And now the entire internet is snarky and and it's hard to sort of appreciate. But it was um, the birth of the short-fingered Bulgarian um, epitaph for Donald Trump. Uh, People don't know. There were other ones that didn't catch on, like there was um, Queens-born failed casino operator (laughs) was another one. But um, yeah, we we dispensed of Donald Trump and he was never heard from again.
2: (laughs) We're going to ride that energy right on out to the end. I think I'm, I'm so, we want to thank everybody uh, for being here, especially coming out in Los Angeles when it rains. People act like lavas falling from the sky. <laughs> uh, but uh, this was really nice of you to do this. And I think a huge round of applause for Conan O'Brien Al Stovall for doing oh, this Greg
4: Daniels. Yeah.
2: Greg Daniels.
3: That's all we got.